Welcome to the Stories Behind the Stars podcast. In this podcast, we interview researchers who are finding and telling the stories of individual World War II fallen heroes. This is part three of our interview with Jonathan Floyd. Well, do you have any other stories to share with us? Yeah, I have a couple more. Uh, there are, there's one more pilot that I wanted to talk about, uh, and then we'll be done with the pilot. I, I, I really find these, these pilot stories so interesting. Um, this one is uh, Staff Sergeant Howard J. Fain, uh, born in 1919 in Kenilworth, Utah, in Carbon County. Uh, once again, middle of nowhere, uh, central Utah. Uh, and, and he grew up in Salt Lake City. Uh, he was a, um, a missionary, served a church mission, uh, in Canada, just proselyting, uh, for his faith. And then after his missionary service, he enlisted in the Army Air Corps, uh, in December of 1943. And he was assigned originally to the RAF, to the to the British Royal Air Force. This is something that's kind of interesting, um, and 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 another thing that kind of I think gets overlooked uh, that there were Americans who were sent to crew British, you know, aircraft and to be a part of the RAF and and reinforce their units. There was some sharing of of troops uh, between the U.S. and and the other Allied powers, and uh, and he was one of them. So he was assigned to be a gunner on a B-17 uh, bomber and, uh, and then eventually was reassigned to a different unit, still flying in B-17s, but as a bombardier. And so what that job was, you know, a, a B-17 or a bomber of that time, these bombs aren't, you know, electronically guided. Nowadays, you have smart bombs, right? You, you drop it and you can put it on the head of a pin. Um, and, and, and the precision is just absolutely terrifying. And back then you didn't have that, right. you 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 had a, a site, right. With, with, with range finding markers and you had to just line it up as best you could, uh, so that the bomb release would be reasonably accurate. Um, and so it was a difficult job. It was, it was, uh, it required a lot of training and, and, uh, it was hard to get right sometimes, but he, that was his role. Uh, he was on April 20th, 1945. So this is right at the end of the war, uh, right before just a, a week and a half or two weeks really before the, the Germans surrendered. Uh, he's, he's flying over, uh, Northern Italy, uh, over a town called Fortesa. This was kind of an interesting time in Italy. Just, this is maybe a little bit of a tangential background, but, but at the time, Southern Italy had kind of seceded from Northern Italy a little bit and had started fighting for the allies. Um, they were sick of fascism. They were sick of the whole Mussolini deal. They were really ready to be done. And so, so a lot of these missions were being flown, uh, from allied occupied Southern Italy to hit Northern Italy where there were still fascist forces. Um, and this was an important railroad hub. Fortesa was, was a very important railroad hub for the fascist Italian forces. So that was their target. Um, they were hit by anti-aircraft fire over the course of the bombing run, and it blew a 30-inch hole in the side of the plane uh, and made the plane uncontrollable. So the, the, the pilot who's in command of the plane ordered everybody to abandon it, and everybody else 
uh, besides Sergeant Thane, made it out safely and parachuted the ground uh, without a problem. He uh, ended up catching his parachute on a rock outcoming. They were kind of parachuting into a little bit of a kind of a canyon, and and there was a cliff that his chute got snagged on, and it whipped his his body down into the side of the cliff, and 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 he was killed on impact. Um, and that was that created kind of an awkward situation because uh, the the locals before the air force could really respond to to this the army air corps could respond to the crash locals found his body uh, and they didn't just want to leave it there so they buried him in a local cemetery uh, so then it was this whole mystery this this whole hunt right for the for the army air corps to find to track his body down. Um, and eventually they were able to find where the locals had buried him and, uh, he was returned to his family and, and buried in Salt Lake city. Um, but it's one of those freak accidents, you know, a, a totally accidental preventable tragic death just because he happened to be sh- parachuting a few feet away from the other crew members and, and, and got caught. It was just a, a very sad situation. Yeah, it's really, you know, fascinating to see, like, it's a lot of it came to fate, you know, jump two seconds later, maybe you would have survived. And so there's so many of those. I mean, I I interviewed a a veteran in our neighborhood several years back, and and I was talking to him, and he's like, you know, you know, what did you learn from the war? And he said, I think the most impactful thing I learned from the war is just like, you just never know when it's your turn to go. And God's in control of that because he's like, you know, sitting next to this man and, you know, having conversation and the next day he's dead because he sat somewhere that I didn't. And um, like he, he told this crazy story. He, he was in the Battle of the Bulge and they, they were lost and and um, he was super tired and he was just, he just really was, you know, wanting to sleep in the middle of the night. And so he set up his his, you know, cot and sleeping area in this one air, in one place and and just crashed, fell asleep. And the next morning he woke up and his hand was like laying down on the ground next to his cot and he feels this like metal wire and he realizes that he had somehow perfectly set up his entire cot in the middle of a minefield and didn't trigger anything because the ground was so frozen and so cold that he was he was safe you know but he but he's like i just you know i just didn't realize you know how luck and I don't know if it's luck or if it's fate or whatever it is, plays this role into your survival. And, and I think that's something that really a lot of veterans struggled with, you know, and just, you know, how come I survived and he didn't, you know, just like that story is like everyone survived the plane crash, but that one person two minutes later, different wins, you know, and it would have been a different story. It's, it's just crazy. Yeah. It's one of those things that really, you know, it's, it's the aspect of war that really brings our shared humanity into focus, which seems like an odd thing to say about a war where, you know, so much for shared humanity, we're trying to kill each other. But at the end of the day, who lives and who dies, yeah, is is not necessarily our decision to make. And it's it, it can seem so very random sometimes. And it really brings home the fact that we're all just as breakable just as human as, as the next person war of all things where the stakes are, are literally life and death really brings that out. 
Yeah. So you have one last story to tell us? Yeah, one more. Um, this one is one of the more recent ones I did as part of the D-Day project that's ongoing for Stories Behind the Stars. Uh, and this is a, a very, very interesting story to me. Once again, because I wish I had more. I would love to know every single detail about this guy's life. And unfortunately, there, there isn't a ton of information available that I've been able to locate so far. Uh, but this is First Lieutenant Alfred S. Anderson, uh, U.S. Army. He was born in 1919 in Brooklyn, New York, uh, where his father was a food delivery driver. And he ended up entering the same business, uh, delivering beer to, to different places in New York. Uh, he enlisted in the army, uh, during the course of the war. It's not entirely clear when, unfortunately, once again. Um, but by the time of the D-Day landings, he was a first lieutenant in company A of the 116th infantry regiment. Uh, that unit would come to be known as the suicide wave. Uh, their, their role was to attack Omaha beach um, during the, during the D-Day landings. And, uh, he, his, his company was literally the first to land on the beach. Like they got off the landing crafts first and, and there were supposed to be airstrikes that would go through and soften up the German defenses on those beaches, uh, so that it wouldn't be so brutal for these first soldiers to landing. But the ground was so soft uh, on the beaches that day, that the, the airstrike were pretty ineffective. It kind of dulled the effect of the of the weapons that were being dropped. Um, most of the German defenses were totally uh, intact by the time that this these first companies landed, and and this was he was in the very first company, Company A. Uh, not everybody in the company even made it uh, to shore. One of the landing crafts sank and killed almost everyone before they even got to shore, uh, and and then within within literally 10 minutes of the other landing craft reaching the shore, every single officer in company a was either dead or so severely wounded that he was totally incapable of, of, of leading these men. And that included Lieutenant Anderson. He was killed, uh, very quickly, uh, after landing. Uh, and, and so because of that, there was just a mess, uh, the, the soldiers who survived the landing didn't have any leadership, right? They didn't have any officers in command of them. And so they were just kind of lost. And eventually they got roped into doing uh, search and rescue work for, you know, with some of these other units, trying to find anybody who was left alive uh, after that initial wave. And, and, and it was pretty, you know, initially a pretty Pyrrhic victory, right? They were able to kind of secure the beach but they lost two, company A lost two thirds of its men and the other losses in those early 116th regiment companies were, were pretty similar. It seems like, um, but it was, what they did was crucial because they were able to really finally silence those German defenses. And so the other waves that landed after them had a much easier time and, and suffered much less, uh, dramatic losses. Um, the reason why this one is so interesting to me is because there aren't a lot of records available about Lieutenant Anderson during his time in the army, but company a right. The suicide company was the elite of the elite of, of the 116th regiment. They were the very, very best 
specially trained uh, troops. And, and, and so he must have been a pretty remarkable person, a remarkable soldier to be an officer in a, in a company like that with that status and that mission uh, to, to be the best of the best and to be told basically you, you're, you're not going to have a lot of help here, but your job is to make it safer for the soldiers who are going to come and land after you. That's, that's not an easy assignment. And he probably knew going into it that his odds were not great. They, 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 you know, this was not an ideal situation, but they did their jobs and, and contributed enormously to the success of the D-Day operation. So I really, he really sticks out to me. It's so crazy to find somebody who knew him or, or knew more about him and, and could tell you, like, cause to me, the leader of the best of the best, there's gotta be something, you know, some kind of quality or, you know, something about him. Right. Yeah. That, that was a, a definitely a, a special one to write. Just the more that I learned about the 116th regiment and company a in particular, the, the more I kind of realized this was, a special unit. These were, these were special soldiers. They, they really were remarkable. So one thing I love to ask people that I interview is how do you feel like doing this project has changed you or changed your perspective? Right. I mean, you kind of have this idea, I guess, when you think about war and, and world war two, the same as any war that, that dramatic and heroic things do happen right? You hear stories, right? You occasionally see in the news that somebody's been awarded the Medal of Honor or, or something, you know, something for, for some extraordinary bravery. Doing this makes me realize how heroic it was just to show up, just the fact, and none of these guys were drafted. None, there, there's not a single draftee in, in the, in the, in every, in all the stories that I've done, not one single one of these guys were drafted. There were, you know, plenty who were, and that's not a bad thing, but, but these guys volunteered. They, 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 they stepped up and, and said, I want to go fight. This is, this is my country. I want to, I want to protect it. That's a big deal. Just the fact that they were there, you know, and, and then everything they did after that is amazing. But, but, but whether you were in the thick of combat with an elite unit landing on the beaches of Normandy or whether you're flying a B-17 between two airfields in the Western United States, just on a, on a transfer assignment, you're still showing up, right? You're still saying, I'm willing to put my life on the line for this country and, and do whatever you ask me to do to make that happen. That's a big deal. Every single one of these guys was heroic just for doing that. And I've, that's kind of the change in perspective that I've had. Kind of really helps when life gets tough too, to like, I mean, not saying that we go through the same thing that they, they did, obviously not, but like, you know, that's what life is about, you know, show up, show up to the fight, show up to, to the challenge and face that and, and get through it. Right. Whether it's this massive heroic thing or whether it's, you know, showing up to your job and doing what you have contracted with your boss to do, you know, it's that kind of, that kind of character that really matters and makes a nation. So one last question and then I'll let you go. But uh, if you could give anybody advice, your age, specifically your age, I mean, I think you, most of the people who are, who are doing this project are, are older or retired and, and there's very few of us that, you know, are under 30. So if you could give anybody advice, that's, you know, your age, 
what what would you say to them about about like volunteering or thinking about volunteering or the the value of or I, I guess the, the the perception of of World War II for our generation, right, for younger people, is really that of history. You know, I I mean the the number of total living World War II veterans at this point is very 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 small, um, and 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 there aren't a lot of people around anymore who for whom that's a lived experience, right? For us, it's something that we cover in our in our U.S. history classes in high school or, or whatever. This kind of thing, getting involved in a project like this, makes it personal, right? You, you realize that these are real people. These aren't just, you know, words on a page or names in a book, uh, you know, obscure facts about battles and, and aircraft and, and ships and things like that. But these people had lives and, and they had families and maybe they have, you know, relatives that are still around today. And, and having this information available, you know... It, 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 it makes it so that valuing or the, the the value of these people isn't isn't lost. I don't know if that makes sense, um, but that we we see these people as the role models that they can be for us. This project goes so much more in depth than just like a history class, right? It's so much more personal, and it, and to me then reading about individual people is so much more personally impactful than reading about just a battle. Right. That's to me, that's where, where this is worth worthwhile. Yeah. A hundred percent agree with you. It's about, it's about that one name that has a story and it's worth researching and telling. I hundred percent agree with you. It's been such an honor to be with you and to see someone your age do sacrificing time for someone who died at your age, right? You know, and I just think it's it's really awesome. I hope we can get more youth involved. And I mean, obviously, you're not you're a young man, <laughs> you're not a youth, but um, you're, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> take it while you can, because you know it, yeah. it goes fast. But it's just been really awesome to get to know you and see the work you have done and are continuing to do. And and um, yeah, thanks for being on here. Yeah, thank you so much. It's it's, it's been a, an honor and a pleasure. I've loved working with this project has been really fun to get to talk about some of these people. Thank you for listening to the stories behind the stars podcast. We're so grateful you're here with us today. If you like this content, please consider subscribing. Please consider donating on storiesbehindthestars.org or even better yet, volunteering to help write these stories. We're so grateful for all of our many volunteers who are making this project happen. And if you have a story you think needs to be on this podcast, contact us at contactstoriesbehindthestars.org.